Take out your Bibles, opening once again to John's Gospel, John chapter 3. John chapter 3 this morning. We have made our way through uh, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, which has kind of consumed our thoughts necessarily so for the better part of the last uh, five, six, seven weeks as we've sought to understand the, the great need of the new birth, being born again, born from above by God, by His grace, through Jesus Christ alone. Not of works, not through anything we do, lest we should boast, but so that Christ Himself gets all the glory. And so as we turn our attention this morning to John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36, we are reintroduced now to John the Baptist. Uh, the, sheen, the scene shifts away from Jerusalem where so much of chapter 2 and 3 took place, where the, uh, the miracle took place, where Jesus cleansed the temple, where this conversation with Nicodemus took place. The scene shifts away from there to uh, the Judean countryside, we're told in, in verse 22. Uh, and, and we, we kind of get a, a, a picture into Jesus' public ministry. Uh, In verse 23, again, John the Baptist comes onto the scene, and and this is really getting us ready for the main point of what the text we're looking at this morning is about. Um, John the Baptist is baptizing, and Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. And so you've got two different groups that are doing ultimately the, the same thing. And for some reason, this triggers a discussion, a dispute, an argument, if you will, Uh, over purification between the disciples of John the Baptist and a certain Jewish man. And what's interesting here is, as these events are unfolding in the text before us, we're just simply told it's a debate over purification. Nothing more is said about it. Uh, In fact, when John's disciples come to John with, here's what's happened, you know, we're, we're, We're baptizing as we've always done, and they come to him. It doesn't even sound like they come to him with a purification issue. They come to him, and in verse 26, they they simply say, Hey, John, you know, um, we're out baptizing, and we look over here, and Jesus and his group are baptizing over there, and more people are going over there than are coming over here to us. So what is... Purification have to do with all this? Well, we don't really know directly. Uh, There's probably an intent there, but it just seems to be the situation that starts the discussion. What's of most importance is how John responds to the acknowledgement of his disciples. The, The direction that John takes the conversation as he acknowledges the fact that, yes, Jesus and his disciples are over here baptizing, we're over here baptizing, and more people are are going over to him. John the Baptist turns all attention away from himself and unto Christ. And in fact, so much so, how he responds to what he and his disciples see lays out really what's in his heart. That all along, John the Baptist's life and ministry, as significant as it was, he was never ultimately concerned about himself. He was never ultimately trying to showcase himself. He was ultimately never trying to make much of himself. His joy 
was never in him. But he's going to say that his joy is made complete by seeing that so many are turning away from him and to Christ. The title of the message this morning, The Church's Unfading Joy, The Increase of Christ. The true church's unfading joy, the increase of Christ. It's a very personal message this morning. Personal for us as a ministry, personal for me as your pastor, and I trust it will be personal for you uh, with regard to your life and to your how God is at work in and through you. The church's unfading joy, the increase of Christ. Let's look together at the text. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his, his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon, near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness. Me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's bow our heads in prayer. And as you do, would you take a moment that you would pray for the heart of John the Baptist here, that he must, must increase. Pray that the Lord would help you and me and us treasure Christ in this way. He must increase, and I must decrease. Father in heaven, we do thank you this morning for your word. We thank you, Father, for how it continues to mold and shape our thinking of who you are, of who Christ is, of his preeminence, of his supremacy, of his allness, and how it also, Lord, reveals to us ourself in comparison, that we are not Christ. We were never intended to be Christ. We were never intended to live lives about ourselves and about our building ourselves up and our kingdoms up and our empires up. Uh, but Lord, we 
have been saved by your grace through Christ, for Christ, to be servants of Him, to make much of Him, that the world may see Him and His infinite fullness would increase to the ends of the earth. Father, we pray for humble hearts this morning, hearts that will die to ourselves and be willing to evaluate the things in our lives and around us, not on the basis of what we see, nor even on the basis of how the world measures things, but that we would measure them in accordance with your intention, your eternal purposes, and how you have seen fit to use everything for your glory and the exaltation of your Son. Help us this day, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we, it's important for us as we look at this passage. Yes, we're going to jump into, we want to see the heart of John the Baptist. But the heart of John the Baptist that is on display becomes all the more stunning when we rightly understand the backdrop of who this John the Baptist is. So I want to take just a few moments this morning, even as we think about the church's unfading joy, the increase of Christ, our joy is in Christ alone and in His increase. I want us to see here in John the Baptist just how significant it is for this man to say, I must decrease. And if John the Baptist says, I must decrease, then all of us as individuals, as families, even as a church, must be willing to embrace. We must be willing to decrease in the name of Christ's increase. So let's talk a little bit about John the Baptist and the significance of this text here. With the coming of the Son of Man, with the coming of the Messiah, we expect that God is up to something. Right When Jesus Christ came onto the scene and you had the angels and the shepherds and, and all this, I mean, there, even if you didn't know everything that was going on, it was clear God is up to something this night. And, and that's true. God is doing something with the coming of Christ. He's transitioning away from what we might call an old way of doing things to a new way with the coming of Christ. Here at the end of this chapter we learn that God is making a transition with the coming of Christ. A transition with how He relates to man. And that really is the significance of the coming of Christ. The Old Testament saints, prior to the coming of Christ, related to God under the Old Covenant, which was made between God and Israel at Mount Sinai, right? So that was how the people of God related to God. God gave the law to Moses and charge the people with keeping it. I'm your God, you're my people, here's how I expect you to live. And the people in return said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. We will keep the law. We will do what you've told us to do. Did they do so? No. They broke the law rather quickly. But here's what we have to understand. That was always going to be the case. Hear me when I say this. It did not catch God's surprise by surprise, when he saw almost immediately the people who had just received his law and said, all that the Lord has said we will do, it did not catch him by surprise when he looks at them in the next blink of an eye and they're disobeying him. God gave the law knowing 
Humans cannot keep it. They cannot keep the law. And that was always the point. This was always the intention. All in Israel would sin against God. All would fail to keep the law that God had gave. And thus, they would need to repent of their sins and trust in God's faithfulness, trust in God's promises to receive the forgiveness of God. So while the law could reveal their sin, which it did, it couldn't save them. They couldn't be saved by keeping the law or even doing the offerings and sacrifices that followed because the the blood of bulls and goats cannot remove sin. Salvation was going to have to come another way. Under the old way of relating to God, Israel had to obey the law, perform the sacrifices, they And even still, it didn't bring forgiveness of sins. So the old way of relating to God, it had a purpose. It was intended to show sin and the need of salvation. But that was where the old way of relating to God ended. That was all it could do. It could not bring salvation. the, The blood of bulls and goats couldn't pay for the sins of man. Something was lacking. There was a hole, if you will, in the old way of doing things which was the fertile ground for God always had, there was going to be another way of salvation. The old way of doing things, the old covenant, laid the foundation for the new way of doing things, for the new covenant. And there are hints going all the way back to the book of Genesis that in the future, God was going to do something to fill the hole that the old way of doing things left behind. Are you staying with me? The thing that the old covenant couldn't do, bring about the forgiveness of sins. All the way from the beginning, God was going to do something to fill that void. And then all the way back to Genesis, he's beginning to unveil a little bit of a time what that plan is. (coughs) He's progressively revealing what he's going to do a new way, a different way, a new covenant. And through the different prophets of the Old Testament, they're saying different things. And then you come upon to certain prophets, Jeremiah for one. And Jeremiah chapter 31, we have Jeremiah revealing really for the first time in its fullest form what this new way of salvation God was going to do for his people. And we've talked about it even in the context of John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Jeremiah 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the old covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, right? The old way at the Mount Sinai. I gave them the law. They broke that. Not like that. This is the covenant I will make. Again, it's pointing to a future. It's coming. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law not on a mountain and share with them and then let them just break it again, but I will put my law where? In them, Jeremiah says. I will put my law in them and I will write it on their hearts. Is that not what being born from above, being born by God is? That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You must be born by God, the new birth. You can't do anything. I do it for you. 
and I put it inside of you so that I will be your God and you will be my people. When I put the new covenant in your heart and you say all that the Lord has said we will do, you will do it. Why? What's the new covenant? It's Christ. He kept the law perfectly. He obeyed perfectly. His record of righteousness, the law of God, obedience to the law, is put into the heart of the believer. And now the believer lives with a perfect record of righteousness and a heart and a mind that's being conformed to this Christ so that we desire to obey Him. Do you see the difference? This is the new covenant. Likewise, in Ezekiel chapter 36, again, God begins to reveal some of what the new covenant is going to be when He says in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart. I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes. So now when the people say, all that the Lord has said we will do, will they do so? Yes. Why? Because the new birth, the work of the spirit, the work of Christ in the soul of man causes them to walk in obedience. That's why when Nicodemus comes to Jesus with all these, here's what I've done, Jesus says, you need to be born again. Why? Because I see everything you've done. I see into your heart. I see your motivation. I'm tasting of your heart. You've not done it perfectly. You've not obeyed me perfectly. You've got to be born again from God. Your record of righteousness, your good works, your morality, the prayers you pray, the songs you sing, all those things. Don't save you. There's only one way of salvation for God to do it. This is the significance of the coming of Christ. This is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament had been promising. The old way of doing it, of trying to obey God yourself and do things to please God, doesn't work. And it was never intended to work. That's why when Nicodemus comes with all that he has done, and while we often come with, here's, Lord, take pleasure in me because I had a good day today. I was faithful today. I did this today. Your hope is not in you. Your hope is in God and what he has done. Now, the old covenant pointed to the new covenant which would be ushered in with Christ, but accompanying that new covenant, which is massive. The Old Testament also foretold there would be a forerunner. A forerunner to the Messiah who would prepare the way for him. That this would be the way you know that the new covenant is being ushered in. There's going to be an individual who comes before the new covenant. And this individual will prepare the way, prepare the hearts, prepare the message to signify the new covenant is here. Malachi prophesies about this forerunner in Malachi chapter 3. Behold, God says, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. You see, Malachi is prophesying 
There's going to be a very, very, very important person who's going to precede the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah prophesies the same thing in chapter 40. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway of our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough place a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all the flesh shall see it together. Why? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There's coming a mouth. There's coming one to set the tone, to set the way for the coming of the Messiah. You know, the New Testament identifies who this messenger is. And his name is John. Not the gospel writer. The voice crying out in the wilderness is John the Baptist. And here's the thing we need to understand about John the Baptist. Stay with me. We're getting somewhere. John the Baptist knew who he was. John the Baptist knew his significance in the eternal plans and purposes of God. John knew. John knew the significance of the new covenant. John knew the massiveness of the coming of the Messiah. And John knew God had promised one who's going to come and this individual might be outside of Christ the most important person who's ever lived because he's preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. And John the Baptist knew he was that man. How do we know that? John chapter 1, verse 23, he said that he hears John the Baptist, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Where, 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 did, he, where did that phrase come from? The voice of one crying out in the wilderness. We just read it, it's from Isaiah. And what did John the Baptist say? I'm the one it was prophesying about. I'm the one Isaiah was talking about. John the Baptist was unique among all men in all humanity because by way of being this foretelling one, he occupies a unique position in the history of God's plan to save man. He was the prophet elected by the Father to prepare the way for Jesus to prepare the way for this massive transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. This transition with the coming of Jesus is eternally significant. And John the Baptist has the God-given role of being the hinge into this turning point. Part of his God-given role as the forerunner, is to turn all attention to who? To Jesus, to the Messiah, to the new covenant. In other words, as important and significant and huge as John the Baptist is in the history of the world, and I'm trying to make that argument, that apart from Jesus, John the Baptist might be arguably the most important figure in the history of the world as this. Now, I'm saying that loosely, but I want you to feel the weight of who this man is. 
And yet in light of all that, God's entire design for this important man is what? He would be completely overshadowed. That he would be completely overshadowed, run over by Jesus. The ministry of John the Baptist was not designed to get bigger and more prominent. John the Baptist's ministry was designed to turn eyes to Jesus Christ. And when he arrived, when Christ arrived onto the scene, and John the Baptist had fulfilled the purpose for which God gave him, John the Baptist dissolves away. John's going to end up in prison. John's going to die. John's going to fade away. It's a very human emotion not to want to be overshadowed. It's a very human emotion not to want to be replaced. It's a very human emotion not to want to be forgotten. It's a very human emotion to want you yourself to be built up, to be applauded, to be recognized, to get attention. And that's what makes this figure, John the Baptist, all the more remarkable. He was human. John the Baptist wasn't a God-man. John the Baptist had the same sin nature we do. By nature, John the Baptist did not want to be overshadowed, did not want to be forgotten about, did not want to pass the baton over to another. But God had done a work in his heart that had changed that heart so that John saw his life was not even his own. It's no wonder Jesus said of John in Matthew chapter 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen none greater than John the Baptist. What was it that made John the Baptist so great? Well, sure, he was probably the, the highest of all the prophets. As the one who was the one who foretold the coming of the Messiah. He was a significant figure. He was great in that regard. John was known for living an uncompromising life that pleased the Lord. Certainly that made him great. But I don't think either of those is what Jesus is talking about. What is it that made John great? Most of all, it was that he possessed the one attitude that all great men and women of God have possessed. Humility. Throughout the opening chapters of John's Gospel, John the Gospel writer makes clear about John the Baptist this. John knew who he was and John knew who he wasn't. John knew his role in the unfolding plan of redemption, but he also knew he was not the Messiah. You remember the line of questioning that some of the, the leaders came and asked John? And one of the questions, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? And he categorically said, I am not the Christ. He knew who he was, and he knew who he wasn't. He knew that in the kingdom of God, in God's eternal plans and purpose, God had a purpose for him for a season, and it would not be an enduring season. 
John would not go down in the annals of history as, as a, a having an empire of his own that lasted for, for generations, that lasted for a following for years and years and years. Rather, it's just the opposite. It was a very small window of time. And that was not because John the Baptist failed. It's because it's exactly what God intended. And John the Baptist was content with that. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. John the Baptist didn't think of himself more highly than he ought. He didn't see himself as Christ. John wasn't perfect or sinless. But he was one who knew the glory of Christ. And he saw himself in comparison to that glory and recognized his nothingness in comparison to Christ. And therefore God had crafted him and chosen him and called him for this one reason. To make much of Jesus. Not himself. In John's humility, there are certain things about this humility that I think probably are helpful for us. This morning, we're not preaching John the Baptist. What we're preaching this morning is the, the heart of a true believer. The heart of one who's been born of God by the new birth through Jesus Christ. Who's been a recipient of the new heart in the new covenant. Who's been called out of the world to walk into a relationship with God and to live in service with Christ, just like John the Baptist. There are certain attitudes that we must possess in order to guard against frustration, discouragement, anger, jealousy, envy. There are certain attributes we must be gripped by in order to live a life of joy, even when the circumstances around us don't seem to dictate joy. What are these attitudes? The first is this. We must acknowledge the sovereign grace of God in our service to Him. We must acknowledge the sovereign grace of God in our service to Him. You remember the John's disciples came to Him and they said, Hey, John, we were out baptizing, and we saw Jesus and his followers, and he's out baptizing too. And more people are going to him than to you. And this doesn't look right. This doesn't feel right. It feels like we're messing up. It feels like we're failing. We're being surpassed. John's response to them in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. What's he doing there? He's acknowledging what his disciples saw. It's not upon him to try to, oh my goodness, 
oh my goodness, we need to rethink things. What are Jesus and his disciples doing that we're not? Why are they going to him? Why are they skipping past us? Why are they walking past us and, 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 and going over to where he is? We need to reconfigure things, rethink things. That's not what he does. He acknowledges simply the sovereign grace of God in service to him. And the same is true for you in your life, in your home, in your career, in our church. God is sovereign. God is in control. We saw this this morning in John chapter 17. Over our very salvation, God is sovereign. God is sovereign over all. He's sovereign in establishing and maintaining, and whenever he's done with it, removing ministry. But he's sovereign over that. He's sovereign in the work of his church. In 1 Corinthians 12, we read that the Holy Spirit apportions or gives out. He gifts to each one individually as he wills, as he wants to do. Then in 12 verse 18, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. And in the body of Christ, some are hands, some are feet, some are eyes, some are ears. And God has ordained it to be so. God arranges it as so. And as bad as a foot may want to be a hand, as bad as a leg may want to be an arm and think, oh, I could do so much better than that arm up there. I'm in the wrong place. They're not recognizing my gifts. They're not recognizing my genius, my brilliance. If I were the arm or if I were the finger, as opposed to what God has made me, man, things would be different. Well, you're not God. God arranges the body as he intends. And he's pursuing his own glory, not yours or mine. And like John the Baptist, you and I have to rest in his good will, his good plan for us, to the role that he has placed us in in the body. That's what John the Baptist acknowledges here. He acknowledges that his ministry, as significant as it is, probably the most significant ministry in the history of the world, was nothing more than a gift. It was by grace John the Baptist was chosen. It could have been, now it wasn't going to be, but just hear me out. It could have been literally anybody that God was going to do this work through. Now it wasn't going to be anybody. It was specifically chosen to be John the Baptist, but that was grace. And John knew that that window of ministry that he had been given was a gift from God. And for you and I, all ministry is a gift. It's a privilege to know the living God. It's a privilege to commune and fellowship with Him. It's a commune to serve Him. And if He gives you opportunity, it's from Him. And if He takes it away, it's from Him. He can make one person's ministry popular. He can make another person's ministry not popular. And it's not because one was unfaithful. It's because of His purposes. John the Baptist is not losing followers because he did anything wrong. He was faithful to the very end. 
But what's he acknowledged? It's all the sovereign grace of God. John did exactly what God gave him to do. He did it faithfully. And so when the disciples came and said, hey, John, you're losing followers. They're all going over here. John wasn't threatened. He wasn't angry. He didn't sit back and, all right, let's rethink the playbook. He wasn't jealous. Why? This whole thing has been a gift from God for his purpose and his timing. Everything John had was given by God. And he couldn't do anything more than what God gave him to do. If the crowds flocked to Jesus, there was nothing John could do to change that. In fact, as we read on, John wouldn't have had it any other way. John wasn't trying to preserve his own. He understood God had a plan and purpose. You know, the fascinating thing even about the life of the church, God raises up churches for various reasons, always to exalt Christ, but it doesn't always have the same leading. Go back to Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah sees the, the Christ high and lifted up and exalted, exalted, the holiness of Christ, and there's a subsequent question, who will go? This is always in your missions conferences, Isaiah chapter 6. Who will go and serve me? And based upon the seeing of Christ, me, send me. With the intention of what? You expect God has a plan to use this and do wonderful things. Keep reading in Isaiah chapter 6. What does the mission that God gives to Isaiah? You're going to go and you're going to be faithful and they are not going to believe. God chooses his people to salvation and the rest to his judgment. Isaiah's ministry was faithful. It wasn't based upon the fruit of it. It wasn't based upon how many. Isaiah, you're going to go and you're going to proclaim the excellencies of God. And I'm just going to tell you because it's going to frustrate. They're not even going to believe. They're not even going to listen to you. And God says, but this is my ministry. I have a purpose in this. As individuals, as families, as churches, we must understand the sovereign grace of God in our service to God. That's what John the Baptist knew. And that's what we've got to fight for. Ministry is a gift from God. You've got to hold it with an open hand. Maybe the church grows. Maybe it will always be small. Maybe the position God's placed you in in the church, maybe you'll never be a Sunday school teacher, though you think you could be. Maybe you'll never be an elder in the church or the pastor of the church, though you think you could do it ten times better. Maybe you didn't get picked to lead on your team at work. Maybe you have a brilliant ministry idea and the church should do this, and the reason we're not doing this, the reason we're not doing this. Maybe the guy or girl you were meeting with for discipleship just decided, you know what, I'm just, I'm just not going to go anymore. Maybe the person you were witnessing to doesn't want to hear it anymore. Maybe the friends you fellowshiped with at church moved on to other churches. Have we learned to serve Christ with an open hand? Learned that 
All we have, whatever we have, is a gift from God. That's what John the Baptist knew. And why John the Baptist, his joy is not incomplete, though he is losing his followers. Secondly, a second attitude we must have and understand is is not only acknowledging the sovereign grace of God in our service to God, but secondly, if you're going to magnify Christ in your life and ministry, you must embrace being small. You must embrace being small. Look at what he says. John 3, verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John's appealing to what he's already told them in chapter 1. No, I'm not the Christ. You came and asked, am I the Christ? Am I Elijah? Am I the prophet? No, I'm not. I'm not the Christ. Those are big dogs. That's not who I am. That's not who I'm trying to be, John the Baptist says. The next day in John chapter 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him. And what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God, turn your attention here. Look unto Jesus. Don't look to me, look to him. Here's the big dog. Here's the one everything is about. I'm small, he's huge. Look to him. And it's interesting here in verse 28, John says, you yourselves. Who's he talking to? His own disciples. And the you yourselves is in the emphatic here. He's saying, you disciples who've been with me, who've heard me, you of all people should know the answer to this. You know, you of all people know, no, this isn't surprising. My ministry was given to me by the Father. He's sovereign. I was sent by God for a purpose. The fact that things are drifting away from me now shouldn't catch you off guard. We've we've talked about this. You know what my role is here. Malachi 3.1, I'm setting the tone for him to come. Now that he's here, now I just dissolve into the distance. That all eyes may be on Christ. But the disciples did what so many of us do as well. This was their rabbi, John the Baptist was. And when the rabbi says something you don't like, what do you do? You ignore it. Right? If the rabbi, your teacher, if I say something that you disagree with, what do you do? One, you may, uh, you know, grumble. You'll probably let it go in one ear and out the other. That's what we do, right? I do the same thing. That's what his disciples did. That's why John is saying, what are you talking about? You may not like it. You may not understand it. But this is the sovereign grace of God. This is the purpose of God. That I exist for one reason. Not to build up my empire. Not to build up my reputation. Not to showcase my talents, how smart I am. Not to show off my glory. Not to build a kingdom that will last for generations. But I embrace my smallness. That's not who I am. That's not God's purpose for me. There's only one big dog, and it's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I'm not in competition with him. John the Baptist is clear. I'm not the Christ. Even to his own followers, don't think of me more highly than you ought. 
Don't think of my ministry more highly than you ought. My ministry's purpose is to point to Jesus. If you're not running to Jesus, then this is a total waste. Don't think of our church more highly than you ought. There is a role and a function of the life of the church in the church in the life of a believer. But the church is not the destination. The church is a means of grace to turn you to Christ, to constantly be picking your head up to Christ, 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 Christ. John wasn't looking to make his name great. He'd embraced his smallness. There's only one name that was to be made great. And whose name was that? Jesus Christ. That every knee would bow and tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One commentator says this, John is like a a meteor that blazes through the night sky and then just burns out. But Christ is the sun that comes off in the distance and the sun never fades out. You hear the difference? One fades out. It was always intended to fade out. It should fade out. The other one never will. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Master. Jesus is the King of Kings. Is the servant greater than the Master? Is the church greater than the Master? Have we made an idol out of the church? The church's function is to point us to Jesus Christ. It's not a social gathering. It's a place for worship, a place of prayer, a place to open God's Word to see Christ. The servant of Christ should not receive more renown than Christ Himself. The servant of Christ should not receive more attention than Christ Himself. We should not be more diligent to try to build the church, even as important as the church is, than we are building our walk with Christ. The proper posture of a true believer is we embrace our smallness. I embrace I'm nothing. I'm all of grace. And if you've given me a ministry opportunity, even that's grace for your purpose in your season. And all of it is about Christ. We've seen John's perspective, that his perspective is that ministry is at the hand of a sovereign God. We've seen him bowing, embracing his smallness, bowing the knee to Christ. And finally, third, his passion. His passion was showing the beauty of Christ. John chapter 3, verse 29. The one who has the bride, he kind of shifts into an illustration of a wedding. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Now what's he talking about there? He's given an example here of the joy that's experienced at a wedding. (coughs) You have the groom and you have the best man, right? Is the best man the groom? No. 
Is it the responsibility of the best man to go to the wedding and draw all attention to himself? Take attention away from the groom? I know the bride's not mentioned here, but you know, you understand the idea. No, what's the purpose of the best man? To serve the groom. To prepare things for the groom. To set the way for the groom. To bring the ring to the groom. To make sure things are taken care of. The role of the best man the friend, is to oversee the affairs of the ceremony. The, the, the best man selflessly serves the groom, gives of himself to the groom. But the best man never takes center stage, never goes up and, 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 and uh, makes himself, he never gives himself to the bride. The bride is beautiful. But the best man doesn't say, I want her for myself. He rejoices in passing the groom over to the beautiful bride. This is what John the Baptist is saying about himself. He's the best man. And Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. And now that Jesus is on the scene and Jesus, his, his ministry is in full force and people are flocking away from John to Jesus rather than being despondent, angry, agitated, strategic and how can I do to win these people back? He says, what? Guys, you don't understand. My joy is now complete. What you've just shared with me, I'm the best man. Jesus is the groom. My job is to bring people to Christ. And people are flocking to Jesus. I'm done. That's all my life's been about. My joy's complete. Except for a couple of the gospel writers writing it down here so that in the 21st century they'll still be talking, but no one will remember me. This book is not about John the Baptist. This sermon's not about John the Baptist. It's about Jesus. And John says, that's my joy. I was that voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way. And now that voice is here. Christ has come. I'm not angry. I'm not agitated. This was my purpose. This all has been a gift from God. I didn't deserve it. In my flesh, maybe it didn't always go the way I wanted it to but this has been a gift from God. I'm not bitter. I'm not angry. I'm not jealous. This has all been for Christ. And look at him. They're flocking to him. John Calvin warns us, those who win the church over to themselves rather than to Christ violate the marriage they ought to honor. That's not what John the Baptist did. John the Baptist never saw ministry about his own recognition. It was about Christ. All who try to divide the church through dissension or gossip or slander or unfair criticism, disharmony, what are they doing? They're separating the ministry from what the ministry is about, Jesus Christ. The church exists, life exists, you exist, I exist as your pastor to point you to Jesus. I'm not a party planner. I'm not an architect. 
the ministry God has given to me and to you is to point to Jesus. John understood. My goodness, he just wore animal skins and ate locusts and honey. But his life was devoted to Christ. And his heart was full. He was flooded with happiness because hearts were being turned to Christ. So he said in summary in verse 30, He, that's Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. And I emphasize the word must there. Must. This is required. This is a divine necessity. This is what a faithful ministry is. Christ's increase and everything else we ourselves decrease. Is there disappointment in life, in ministry, in your home, in your career? Absolutely. I battle it even as a pastor. But the reality here is contentment is found not in the perfect circumstances. It's found in Christ. It's found in trusting God's sovereignty and understanding he has a purpose in all that he does. And just devoting what time he has given you left, me left, us left, in serving him. To you and I decreasing our wants, our desires, I got to have this. And increasing what? Christ. In order to magnify Christ, we must have these same attitudes. God is sovereign over the ministry he's given to us. We serve embracing our smallness. We're not trying to build ourselves up individually, as families, as a church, as a business. We function with bowed knees. We're about Christ and the proper passion, learning to serve with a full heart to make much of Christ. As we close, there is a need for the rubber to hit the road, isn't there? We gather each Lord's Day. We talk very clearly about the glory of God. We talk about praying for the glory of God, singing for the glory of God. But how rare is it to be a church that doesn't just talk about the glory of God, but takes it seriously? The beauty of Christ, seriously. Of pursuing a relationship with Christ, seriously. Of living unto Christ, seriously. That He is all. We, we can talk all the right things. We gather together each Lord's Day. It's got to go beyond just talk. When we come to the prayer meeting, you pray. You pray. When we come to sing, you sing to the Lord. When we come to the opening of the Word, you listen to the Word. All because what? These are means to glorify God. We don't just talk about it. 
We're serious and hungry and earnest and thirsty as a deer pants for water. So my soul hungers after you, Christ. That's what John the Baptist is embodying for us. This is the work of God in the life of the church. Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, the church, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's bought us, He's purchased us in Christ Jesus. For what? Ephesians chapter 1 closes, for the praise of His glory. He's serious about that. Not that we just talk about the glory of God and the glory of Christ and we're doing it for His glory, but that genuinely in the heart. There's a heart that treasures Him and we bless the Lord and we live unto the Lord faithfully no matter what the world says or the world sees or how the world measures it. We just live unto the Lord for His glory. Over and over, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, God makes it clear. He exists and has created us for one reason. His glory, not ours. Not to build our kingdoms, not to build our own reputations, not to build our own churches, not to build our own empires, not to build our own careers. You, you, you figure out where that connects into your life. But we've been created over and over for one reason. To glorify God. The Westminster Standards, the chief end of man is what? Who can tell me? To what? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man, the purpose. Up here up front, there was some discussion about knowing your why in life, in business, in family, in finances. Well, God supplies that. The chief end is to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. The church of Jesus Christ, living for the glory of God and the beauty of Christ, is not just a slogan. It's our very life. We're not trying to be a church down the road. We're not trying to be something we're not. We're not trying to be popular. I'm not trying to put butts in the seats. That's not my job. We gather together each Lord's Day. These are the ones to cultivate a love for Jesus, a growing love for Jesus, an intentional embracing of your smallness, my smallness, recognizing by God's grace we're here, and it is for His glory. That's our aim. That's our aim. As a church together, our unfading joy is not in how the world might measure us. Our unfading joy is in what? The increase of Christ in our hearts, in our homes, in the world. Oh Lord, make our joy.